This is an ABC podcast. Getting there. Here we go. Tattoo place. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm from the ABC. I'm here to do an interview with Rocky. Hey, hey, I'm Mark. Are we doing hands? I don't know if I'm allowed to anymore. Uh, I'll come through. We've got, um, yeah, we've got all the artist stations set up. Rocky Micah is a New Zealand-Australian tattoo artist who specialises in an art that was once upon a time very, very dangerous. This is where we meet, greet people. How does the conversation normally go when somebody comes in? Uh, We just try to get the basic information from anyone to see what they want. Generally, people come to us and they don't know. They have a small idea, but the conversation is usually what they want. And we will always give them open and honest advice. You talk a lot of people out of bad tattoos, don't you? Yes, and bad ideas. We have to. There's nothing especially dangerous about Rocky's studio, the art of tattoo. It's covered in art. It's filled with sunlight and the official scent of 2020, hand sanitizer and disinfectant. But Rocky does like to play with the sense of danger. They kept the bullet holes in the walls from when this used to be a bikey's tattoo parlour. And then there is Rocky's favourite toy. It's a tattoo machine made from... A fork, a lighter, a CD player motor. I've got one in my drawer. This is a... <laughs> tell, me, tell me what that box says on it. On the front it says fork year. <laughs> I made this machine because uh, when we first opened up our studio, people would always come in, ask how much a tattoo was, Mm -hmm. and then they'd ask me, can you do it cheaper? (laughs) So naturally, fork, yeah. (laughs) It is literally made from a fork, the motor from a CD player. So when it spins... It goes in and out. Yep, up and down. I haven't used this, I just make it just for shock value because (laughs) they don't want the cheap one anymore. And I love that it's got a USB on the end. Yeah so that you can play it. You can, while you're driving around, you can tattoo them while listening to the radio. Doesn't seem like uh, you should be doing tattooing while in a moving car, just putting it out there. No, 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 you shouldn't. Believe it or not, getting the Fourquier treatment in a moving car is not the ultra-treacherous kind of tattoo we're looking into. It's just an awesome reminder to not lowball your tattoo artist. Don't do that, that's not cool. No, when I said that Rocky specialises in a dangerous art, it was the sort of art that once upon a time in history could put a price on your head, literally. This is not just an artefact, this is a human being. Oh my God, it looks like you've always had it. In the days of the British Empire, things were taken. You know when you get those funny looks? It is really, really bizarre. Objects which tell us about the world we have today. But because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us. I'm Mark Fidel, and this is Stuff the British Style. Tamukul means to incise. We actually carved the skin, we didn't pierce it. And that's why we have the indentations. How would you do it? Like, if you had to physically describe the, the process, because it wasn't, that's not machine work, is it? No, they, uh, before they used uh, machines now, like needles, they had used bones, bird bones, and they could cut it in a manner that would, would leave a V gouge. And then that is what they used to cut into the face because the shin bone was so sharp and small. But then after that, there was the introduction of metals. 
that's when the piercing of the skin started. So tamoko is a form of traditional Maori tattooing. That's what Rocky, a Maori man himself, specialises in. And these tattoos are the most intensely detailed works with these stylized curves and patterns that they move almost like waves or wood grain across the contours of the skin. But the design aspect is only really part of the story. It's a bookmark in people's lives. Moko is a way of telling someone's story and giving them something unique. There's Māori, it's, it's an identity process. If people can't guess our accent, they'll see our artwork and get it then. <laughs> All right, so uh, how do you tell the story visually on, on a person's body? So I have to sit down with people and usually just talk to them about their life. They will always give me a story that I base the piece off. But then as we're conversing and as I get to know them better, I put in more detail into it, whether they have an affiliation with the ocean or land or family. I think any moko artist, we all try to... It's a 50-50 relationship. You take on what they're feeling and you have to apply it. So as an artist, there's a lot more than just a straight line. It's the stories is the most important thing because that's the part that, that's how we carry on. Rocky is an ex-soldier and as you might imagine, he's got a pretty amazing selection of moko himself that run up his neck, down his body, and each piece is linked to some part of Maori history. If you feel comfortable sharing, and it's only if you feel comfortable sharing, can I ask you about yours? Yeah. So on his left forearm, it has these dense patterns that are separated by these thick, curved, almost veins of absolutely clear skin. And it's dedicated to the god of the forest, a character by the name of Tane Mahuta. The story is Tane Mahuta because he was the creator of man when he needed the clay to make man. He had, he had punched his arms through the clay to get the cold clay. And then when he had pulled his arms out, his arms were covered in a clay substance. So then people remember this, so that's why the forearm is significant. The skin parts is dedicated to the spirit world. They're surrounding us all the time. And then the parts that have the lines, that's dedicated to the living world because we see everything. Placement has a meaning. So wherever the moko is sitting, it has a meaning where it sits, and then inside of it, each part has a meaning as well. And there is no place more significant or more sacred for moko than the face. Different parts of the face tell different stories or experience that you have. Anybody who has a complete face, obviously, they know their history, they know their story, they know where they're from, they know their ancestors, they know medicine, war tactics. It's a symbol of, of status in a way, right? It is. Uh, the more you know, the more you have, I guess. And it's one way of putting putting people in their place. <laughs> like, that's one way of putting it in. Eh? Moko on the face is the ultimate statement of identity as a Maori, which goes some way to explaining why in the mid-19th century, tattooed, dried and decapitated Maori heads known as Moko Mokai became a hugely sought-after collector's item across Britain. The first head that was traded was by Captain Cook. This is the voice of Hami Peripi. He's from the far north of New Zealand and the chair of the nation, or iwi, of Te Rarawa. It was only on the second British voyage to what we now know as New Zealand that Joseph Banks, the naturalist who travelled with James Cook, 
traded old white linen drawers, yes, underwear, for the head of a teenage boy. This is not just an artefact. This is a human being. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to uh, look at a um, human head of this nature, but the Māori people were extremely adept at preserving heads. Up until this point in Māori history, there was only really two reasons why a head would be steamed, smoked, dried and then sealed with shark oil. The first reason was as a trophy of war. Um, because these initially these tattooed heads were our great leaders, esteemed leaders. Sometimes those heads were actually used to negotiate peace treaties later. Number two, a loved one. Someone who was venerated, who was cherished or wept over. And when you look at a person who's had it done, you think, wow, that is absolutely amazing. You can still see the very clear uh, features and traits of the individual exactly as they were when they, were, when they died. And, and now some of these things are two, three hundred years old, and yet they look exactly the same as they did when they died. Every one of them is a treasure. And usually they were kept in an incredibly sacred place. How these people were obtained was that most of them were stolen from caves and taken away as curios. What began with one head that one member of James uh, Cook's crew got took root and more people wanted them and the demand for tattooed heads grew so large that the price you could get for one was a musket. And in those days, a musket was probably the most powerful tool you could possibly own. But if you could find a spare head, you could get traded and get one. You can see where this is going, right? Pretty soon, tribes started to steal each other's venerated heads to trade for firearms. And in the early 1800s, this head economy helped fuel what was known as the musket wars between tribes. They even started to get a lot less discriminating about what kinds of heads could be traded. Some tribes even tattooed their slaves and then cut their heads off and sold those, you know, and and the trade was brisk. But the trade was driven by the demand from the British, the British people who, who, who found these things very fascinating. They put them on their mantelpieces and stick a candle on top of it or something, you know. It was, it was really, really bizarre. It's interesting also in the sense that not only is it defiling the heads themselves, but it's also sort of defiling the practice of tattooing as well because it seems to divorce it from some of its cultural importance. Am I getting that wrong? Oh, yes, no, that's, that's very true. And also, the, it gets worse. Some people were tattooed after death, but you can tell those ones. <laughs> they're the post-mortem ones. They're, they're a bit different. And so you can see how that demand drove a response. Muskets were really what was going to enable you to survive as, as a tribe or not. And uh, because if you didn't have any and your neighbours did, then you were history. By 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, making New Zealand an official British colony. The decades of Mokomokai trade had virtually ended. Except for those tribes, those families who those heads belonged to, it has never really ended. We, we estimate there's at least another 600 scattered around the world that need to be gathered. And that's why I'm talking to Hami, because in amongst his other jobs, he's on a mission to get these heads back. 
a lot of these things are still stuck in people's attics, particularly the um, the states around Britain and Europe where the, the wealthy have acquired them and now put them away in their attics and they've lost, been lost to. And every now and again, some of them come out and get get sold. And we're always there ready poised to, to, to seize upon them. So, t- so just d- describe for me where I am right now. Um, so we're in front of the, the contemporary meeting house. And so- Hami is not alone. Since 2003, the New Zealand government has funded and mandated that artefacts like these tattooed heads must be tracked down wherever they are in the world and returned. Hami has been involved since the early days and central to the mission is this place here, arguably the best-named museum in the world. Um, National Museum, the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarewa. Te Papa Tongarewa literally translates to container of treasures. And overlooking the harbour of New Zealand's capital, Wellington, on the fourth floor of Te Papa, is this cavernous meeting space, the Marae. A place um, of important meetings um, at a very national level. And so we can have very important events on our Marae. There's a huge, brightly coloured window that illuminates the space and the walls and ceilings are alive with what kind of look like fish. These undulating carvings of pink and orange and purple. see a number of um, figures, contemporary carved figures, that are catching the sun. And so that's around our ancestor Maui, Maui Tikitiki Ataranga. This is the man who the New Zealand government have tasked with the job of bringing those Maori ancestors home. Kia ora, my name is Te Herekeke Hirawini. I'm the um, Head of Repatriation at um, Te Papa Tongarewa. And so our main aim of our project is to um, locate our ancestors, Māori and Moriori ancestors and institutions all around the world, negotiate their return, um, physically uplift them and return them back to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and then return them back to the tribal groups around the country. So Tehetakiki Hedawini's job of returning the remains to their correct home, that job in some ways starts with correcting misconceptions about the heads themselves, including the altercation where the heads were taken in the first place. So Joseph Banks, who was on the Endeavour, he was quite curious about the mummified heads, this elder head. Joseph Banks offered an item of trade for the head. The actual actual elder didn't want to actually give the head over. Um, So Joseph Banks actually put a musket to his head. And so through that engagement, the head was traded. So I don't think it was a fair trade myself. It was something that was forced upon the elder. As Hami mentioned, we believe that there are at least 600 heads now spread around the world. The US, the UK, medical institutions, private collections, and yes, museums. That's a lot of detective work for each and every one. Take, for example, that original head that was taken by Joseph Banks. We do understand that the head was taken back to the United Kingdom, may have been at the Royal College of Surgeons in the United Kingdom for a long period of time, but during World War II, that particular um, institution was bombed by the Germans, and so I think a lot of the artefacts or a lot of the human remains were lost at that time. So our understanding is maybe the head disappeared with the bombings um, of London. How hard is it to do? How hard is it to negotiate their return? 
So I've been in my job for 13 years. I was going to say 13,000 years. No, 13 (laughs) years. I've been in my job 13 years. When I first started in 2007 and I went on my first international repatriation, Um, it was in the United Kingdom and I went to a a medical institute and the, the chair of that medical institute, his opening words to us was, we are returning these ancestors because they are of no value to us. One of my work colleagues that came with us saw saw my eyes and just took me away for a little while till I calmed down and then I came back. Saw that mouldiness in me rising and saw that I needed to actually go away for a little bit. It's hard to imagine to Harakiki Harawini overcome with anger. The man I'm talking to right now has the most incredibly calm diplomatic demeanour, even when talking about something that is macabre on a number of levels, really. People are horrified that, you know, these items were traded. But then that's why I go back to the trade of living human beings between 1400 to 1800 over a 400-year period. That was 7 million people, Indigenous people, 7 million black people from Africa, and they were living human beings that were traded. So it was normal for Europeans to see Indigenous people as a lower form of human species, then you can trade in them, put them in your museums, and you can put them in your medical institutions as objects of study. It was natural for them to think that Indigenous people could be commodified and their remains be commodified as well. What I have learnt over the years is, is something else, is that I still have to be caring and loving, and it is about repatriation, restitution and reconciliation. Were you always this diplomatic or has it been a learned skill? (laughs) We've always, I think it's something around um, my ancestors. One way of creating peace treaties between different tribal groups was through the return of the mummified heads. But another way of creating peace treaties was getting two people to actually marry each other from the different tribes. And so I'm a combination of those. So we become the bridges between our different tribal groups, but we also become the bridges between, you know, New Zealand and other countries. The more you talk to people, the clearer it becomes that the Maori have actually had two things taken from them here. There's obviously the heads themselves. So they all deserve to come home and they all deserve to be offered dignity and respect. But then there's the whole practice of facial tattooing. So after New Zealand became colonised, I've been told now that the facial tattoos became pretty maligned in wider New Zealand society. And even for people like Hami Paripi, as a kid, he thought that it was part of his culture that was dead. Um, I I managed to see the, the last of the old people who had them. And we all thought then that this was going to, this was going to uh, fade, away, fade out. Uh, it, was, it wasn't the thing that was enjoyed by the European. It never has been. Uh, and uh, I guess this book's a bit too fearsome for them, I don't know. You, you all right over there? <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, roughly how much pain are you in right now? Um, one. He's tough, we've already done work on his arm. Back in Rocky's tattoo studio, even he acknowledges that for most of his life, facial moko hasn't had the greatest associations. When I was growing up, it was gang tattoos that I had seen more on people and on their faces. But 
Over the years, artists across New Zealand, just like Rocky, have been fighting to bring it back. We're trying to normalise it. Though it's not without its challenges. So have you ever had somebody come in and ask for moko across their face? Yes. Yes, I have. I have both family and clients. Yeah. How does that conversation go? Like what are the sorts of questions you ask in order to decide whether or not they are worthy? Is that the right term? Uh, No, it's more if they're ready, if they're ready to wear this. Uh, Even I have my neck tattooed and it's hard because people tend to look at you and and tattoos are, are frowned upon. They think everybody is, every tattoo artist is bikey affiliated, gang affiliated, which it's it's not. It's, it's, it's a real touching thing for me, like the the, the moko, because yeah, they have to be ready for it because people will judge, people will speak and people will stare. Yeah, and half the times you just want to ask them to come up and just ask about it, you know, talk. We're, we're nice people. <laughs> We're eloquent people. We like to speak. Don't stare. There is a resurgence right now in facial mokor tattoos in New Zealand, all the way to the most important office in the land, or at least the most important office block in the land. This is the Beehive, the home of New Zealand's government. Uh, I have my lips fully uh, coloured in and then I have designs on my chin. In 2016, this woman you're hearing now, she made history. Her name is Nanea Mahuta. I'm the local MP for Hauraki Waikato. She is the first ever female Indigenous foreign minister. But before that, she was also the first to wear moko kowai, the women's traditional facial tattoo, on the floor of New Zealand's parliament. I'm wondering if you could take me back to the decision to to get it in the first place. What was going on? It was a milestone, reached 20 years of being a parliamentarian, 10 years since the passing of my father, who was a significant mentor in my life. I found that I had other uh, relatives who were thinking about it as well. So we spent quite a few months talking about that before we actually decided, right, we're all in for a dime and a dozen. We're going to get it done <laughs> and we're going to, there'll be a number of us. And then, you know, there ended up being 14 women who got their tamako done. Does it change how you see yourself? Actually, that's a really good question. On the day, it felt like you were being reborn or reconnected to things that you probably always had within you, but it was kind of manifested, you know, once you saw this kind of lifetime marking on your on your face and what it represents and so you feel different there's no doubt about it mm. I think people treat you differently too you get the questions like oh did it hurt how long did it take <laughs> you know did it scab up like you know normal tattoos and um, uh, did you cry and when you went to the shop um, did people stare at you and uh, even down to you know when you catch your first flight uh, overseas flight you have to ask yourself real ning-nong questions like, do I have to get a new passport? <laughs> you know, but there are a whole do lot... Do you, out of curiosity? No, no, you don't. Um, but there are a whole lot of things that you didn't think about, 
you know, going into the journey. And then when you, you're wearing a, a mokokauai, you, you realise, actually, I never even thought that this was going to be half of the response or reaction or the way that I would feel or half of the things that I'd really need to think about. So, yeah, everything changed. But I'm still the same person. I'm probably more me than I've ever been. In your lifetime, have you seen uh, attitudes outside the Maori community to, to tattoos change? Look, tattoos were often associated with gang affiliation, uh, significantly here in New Zealand. And in some communities, small, uh, often rural communities, that is still the case. Uh, but by and large, the um, the mindset of New Zealanders is a lot more open. And so there's more acceptance than ever before. I'd love to know how it felt the moment you walked into Parliament. Did you feel the significance of being the first woman? Actually, I didn't think about it, to be honest. (laughs) Really? Yeah, because um, even though people were making a big thing about it, I actually felt it's a strange feeling that I'd always had it. And so it was actually feeling like somebody had washed your face really properly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people who have known me for a long time and then saw me after I received my mokokauai, they said, oh, my God, it looks like you've always had it. It was bringing the inside out, I think, in some shape or form. There are many, many aspects of our culture that have been obliterated by European standards, values and, and ideas. So it's not just facial moko, it's not just facial tattooing that's coming back, it's the ideas behind them. As moko tattoos start to return to the faces of living Maori, it still leaves the challenge of returning the dead, those moko mokai heads. Our ancestors are connected to our land, this land, and their spirit is connected to this land as well. So while they are overseas, um, their spirit is not settled. And so by bringing them home, we actually, it's, it's about an emotion of reconnecting our ancestors with the place that they belong to. We're back in the Marae, the cavernous meeting place at the Te Papa Museum. This is actually a door that opens. And so that goes out. In 2014, this very marae was the scene of something historic. After much negotiating with an overseas museum, 300 people assembled here to witness the largest repatriation of ancestral remains in New Zealand's history. Among them, 35 mokomokai heads were gently laid on New Zealand soil for the first time in over a century. And I've looked in the face of everyone because that's what you do. They are people. You can't do all that work and welcome people back and not look at them, (laughs) you know? And honestly, in looking at their faces, it occurs to me every single time that I've seen that person somewhere before. And it is incredibly moving. There have been over a thousand ancestors that have been taken from our country. We've been able to achieve 600 of those coming home. To me, the job isn't completed until all our ancestors come home. I'm connected to every ancestor that comes home because they are me and I am them. You just have to keep, keep at it. Which finally returns us back to Rocky, sitting in his studio with his tattoo gun ready to go. I'm, I'm proud to be Māori, knowing where you come from gives you confidence as to what you do and who you are as a person. 
So, have you ever considered having more of your face done? Yes, I have. But going into, with our kids to primary school, people stare at us because we're covered with tattoos. Mm. I guess out of respect for the kids and them not getting teased or anything, I will wait. I just like you, you are the only person I know who's waiting for their kids to turn 18 before they get a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Only another, nine, what, nine more years before you can get your face tattooed? Not waiting that long. <laughs> <laughs> My face will be saggy and old by then, no. No. Stuff the British Doll was produced by Zoe Ferguson and myself. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee, and Julie Browning is the head of society and culture. Mixing and sound design by Martin Peralta. This is a production of ABC RN and it was created, written and edited by me. My name is Mark Fennell and here's a hint for the final episode of this season of Stuff the British Stole. It has a hole in it.